always like Easter morning services. This is uh, one of the fun times of the year when we really get to stop and really focus on who Christ is, what Christ did, and just the celebration of what that is. And the neat thing about it is, is we get to build up to this point. Um, you know, we had our, we called our excellent Wednesday service on Wednesday, and Jonathan taught that and did a great job talking about the death of Christ, what that means and what represents the drama of that, the emotion of that. Rich taught this morning, did an excellent job on the sunrise, focusing on that idea of the tomb and the empty tomb and what that means and represents, which it all builds up to this point here on Easter, which leads to a couple of different things. First off, argumentatively, this is the most important day ever in the world. Because this is the day where, where sin was taken care of, Christ rose from the dead, we have salvation, it's a huge day. And to think that we're just going to take a few minutes now and talk about Easter, you can't do that. You can't fully explain Easter in a few minutes. The other thing about this that makes it difficult is Jonathan and Rich have already stolen all the good points. So there's not much left to say. I mean, you already know that he died. You already know the tomb's empty. You know, let's just do communion and go home type of thing. So, but let's talk about this. Because this day is vital. This day is is just absolutely vital. And when you really try to put into perspective of what this day means and what this day represents, it's world-changing. The idea that God came down in the form of a man, died on the cross for our sins, and now we have access to God in heaven through Christ. Unbelievable. That's what we get to talk about here. So when I was going through the different gospel messages, I was reading through the account in Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, and just trying to look at it and say, okay, Lord, where do you want us to go with this? And some of these passages took me to a passage here in Hebrews chapter 12. And you don't really think of Hebrews 12 as being an Easter message type of passage. But it's really important because it really sums up everything we need to say. So we're in Hebrews 12, and I want us to go ahead and start in verse 22. We're going to be focusing on verse 24, but we need to get to that point first. And there's two key points in verse 24 we're going to talk about. First one, starting in Hebrews 12, verse 22. You have come to Mount Zion, Israel, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect. Now, that's a lot of fancy words that basically is trying to tell us that we have access in verse 22 to heaven. How do we have access? Obviously through Christ. And verse 23, I love this phrase, where the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, you have a reservation waiting for you in heaven. Now, that's an amazing thing. That's an absolutely amazing thing. And any time we go someplace, be it a hotel or something like that, and we make reservations, there's always this little moment in my life of nervousness where you go to the front desk and you say, you know, we have a reservation, and they say, okay, and they're looking for it. There's that brief, just one second, two second thing of, I hope they spelled my name right, I hope they figure this all out, you know, one of those things. It's nice to know that in verse 23, we are registered in heaven through Christ. So that way, when I die and I get to heaven, I already have an RSVP that's been sent in through Jesus, and I have access to God. What an amazing thing. Now, how in the world do we get to that point? Well, if you look at the end of verse 23, we've been made perfect, which means made complete. How? Verse 24 is the key through Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant into the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Two points in that verse we're going to talk about. First one is that phrase, mediator. Mediator, someone that goes between two parties. That's exactly what Christ did. There's heaven and then there's hell. Jesus is the mediator that bridges the gap from heaven to hell. This is the simplicity of Christianity. God is in heaven. He is perfect. And then there's hell. 
Hell was reserved. Actually, hell was created for Satan and the fallen angels to be the place of punishment for all of eternity. It never was intended to be a place for us. But by rejecting Jesus, that's what happens is we go to hell. But our sin keeps us out of heaven. I mean, this is straightforward. We know this. So since our sin keeps us out of heaven, therefore, we need a way to get to heaven. And that's where Jesus comes in. He's the mediator. His death on the cross pays the penalty for my sin. I owe a whole bunch of problems with sin. I have sinned since the day I was born, and I'm still a sinner to this point. And so I need someone to pay this penalty, this debt for me. And Jesus says, that's what I'll do. I pay it through you, for you on the cross. And that's what we celebrated Wednesday is his death that took care of sin. And then by him rising from the dead and the tomb being empty, which we talked about this morning, it proves that Jesus had enough money in the account to pay for my sin. Now, we've said this, I think, every Easter message. Any one of us could have got on a cross and died for the sins of the world. But three days later, I'd still be dead in the tomb. Jesus coming out of the tomb and that tomb being empty proves who he is, proves that the payment has been accepted, proves that now I can be registered in heaven through Christ. He's the mediator between me and God, and he bridges the gap for me to have access to God in heaven. That's who he is. The Bible also calls him an intercessor. He intercedes in our behalf. And in fact, one of my favorite terms for Christ is that he's called an advocate, which in the original language means defense attorney. See, the way this heavenly scene works, the Bible says that the enemy is called the accuser. And he stands up in heaven making accusations against us day and night. So what happens is this accuser is up in heaven speaking to God saying, Look at James. You really want him to be the pastor of that church? You really want him to be that type of man, that husband, that father? Look at him. Look at the words that come out of his mouth sometimes. Look at the action that he does. Look at the sin that is in his life. And he's constantly making accusations against us. You see, God in heaven is perfect. I I don't have the right to be there. But this is where my mediator steps in, my intercessor steps in, my defense attorney steps in and says it's already been paid. That's why the three most important words ever spoken has been, it is finished. It did not say to be continued. It said, it is finished. Jesus, when he died on the cross, finished the payment for my sin and your sin. And so therefore, now we have access to God in heaven. Now, I know that's not a real fun subject to talk about because it's easier just to talk about God. And God loves you, which he does. And God comforts you, which he does. But to really get into the idea of Christianity, we've got to mention that word, sin. You've sinned. I've sinned. You've sinned since you've got up this morning. I think I'm doing okay so far today, but I could be wrong. <laughs> Some of you have sinned this morning since you've got here. Some of you are sinning right now, and I don't want to know about it. But the point is, we all sin. This is a problem that has to be dealt with, and that's the purpose of the mediator, the intercessor, the defense attorney. That's the purpose of the cross. That's why we talked about it Wednesday. This is why the tomb is empty, because Jesus took care of sin for us. And now we have access to God the Father in heaven. And not only access. It says in Hebrews, a few chapters earlier in Hebrews 4, that we can boldly go to the throne of grace. Some of you may have a a doctor that you've doctored with, maybe for 20, 25, 30 years, I don't know. You may have a really good relationship with him or her, but if you want to see him, you still have to make an appointment. Do you realize with God the Father in heaven, no appointment necessary, you can go right to him like that in prayer? Access. And how is that access possible? Through Jesus. See, and this is the thing. We have to mention that name, Jesus. 
As I mentioned earlier, if I just mention the word God, you don't ruffle too many feathers. If I just mention words like God and God loves you and I'll pray for you, I can cross many religious barriers. Not too many people get offended by that. And it's pretty simple and straightforward. About the only person that may get offended by this ambiguous term of God is maybe somebody who's an atheist, but this is what I've run into in the years I've been out here, that even atheists sometimes call up and ask for prayer. So, God is not offensive. If I would just talk about God and talk about how much God loves you and God's there to comfort you and God is there to help you, we can all smile and sing kumbaya and be happy. As soon as you mention Jesus, oh my goodness, that changes everything. See, when you mention Jesus, you're saying now I believe there's only one way to get to heaven. When you mention Jesus, you're saying he's the only access to God the Father. That's divisive. So if you're really smart, if you really want to grow the church, you don't mention sin and you don't mention Jesus. But that's also not truth. See, for us to truly understand what Easter is, we have to understand who Jesus is and what it means for him to be the mediator, the intercessor, the advocate that gives us access to God, the Father in heaven. And this is something that we've been looking for. Human race, I should say, has been looking for for years. Turn you full to John 18. Let's talk about this for a second. John 18. Keep your hand here in Hebrews 12 because we're going to come back to that. We still got the second half of that verse to talk about. But let's talk about this idea of searching for truth. We're all looking for something. And when you're looking for truth, the truth is found in Christ. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. There's three truths mentioned in the Bible. First one is the word of God is truth, the Bible says. The next one is the Holy Spirit is truth. They call him the spirit of truth. And the last one, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So God's word, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus are all truth. Now, We've been searching for truth for thousands of years. John 18, we're going to pick it up here in verse 28 just to give a little bit of background. This is after Jesus has been arrested. He's been taken in by the Jews, and the Jews want to have him killed. And so what happens is they now take him to the Roman authorities and say, we want this guy killed. Uh, John 18, verse 28. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the Praetorium. The Praetorium is where the uh, Roman headquarters were at that time, and it was early in the morning. But they themselves did not go into the praetorium, lest they should be defiled, but that they may eat the Passover. So here you have the Jews, the Jewish leadership of the time that's arrested Jesus, and they want him taken care of. So they take him to the Roman authorities at the praetorium, and that's what they're going to do, is try to see if they can get him killed. Now, first point here in verse 28 is the hypocrisy of this. Did you catch this in verse 28? They won't go into the praetorium, because that's where Gentiles are, and they don't want to be defiled. You know, a good Jew can't be around a Gentile like that. That's just hypocrisy. They arrested this guy for no cause. They want to kill Jesus for no cause. But yet, they sure look good and holy, don't they, in verse 28. Here's a problem with a lot of people, and I'm just going to be straightforward. A lot of people, and I've been in this position, you've been in this position, we look good and holy on the outside, but our heart is not made right with the Lord. They sure looked good in verse 28. We're so holy and righteous, we cannot go into the praetorium. That would defile us. They're hypocrites. Verse 29, Pilate then, Pilate was the Roman governor at this time, Pilate then went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? Verse 30, they answered and said to him, If you were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. Now verse 30 is the greatest example of a non-answer I've ever seen. Verse 29, what did he do wrong? Well, if you weren't evil, we wouldn't have brought him to you. That reminds me of when someone's upset at you and you go up to them and you say, 
I can tell you're upset. What did I do wrong? Oh, you know what you did wrong. No, I don't know what I did wrong. If I knew what I did wrong, I wouldn't be asking you what I did wrong. So, what did this guy do wrong, verse 29? Oh, he's just bad. He's just a bad guy, verse 30. Verse 31, Pilate said to them, you take him. You judge him according to your law. Therefore, the Jews said to him, it's not lawful for us to be put anyone to death, and that this saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. See, here's the key. The Jews didn't want Jesus gone. They wanted him dead. They just didn't want him punished. They just didn't want him banished. They wanted Christ disappearing forever. They did not have the authority to do that. They needed Roman okay to put a man to death. See, same thing happens today. As we mentioned earlier in the message, we can mention God. We can mention ambiguously God loves you in prayer and and all that stuff. But once you mention Jesus, people squirm. People don't like the name Jesus. And so just as they wanted Jesus to disappear in verses 31 and 32, sometimes we want Jesus to disappear now. Let's not, let's not talk about Christ. That's, that's too religious. That's too straightforward. That's too much Christianity. Let's just keep it ambiguous. Let's just say, God bless. I'm not trying to get political. We're in an election year. Every candidate's going to say, God bless. It's very ambiguous. But what about Jesus? Well, the answer is the world wants to make him disappear, verse 32. Verse 33, then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, are you speaking for yourself about this, or did others tell you this concerning me? Now, this is important, because Jesus is cutting to the chase here in verse 34. He wants to know, Pilate, are you asking me personally? Do you really want to know if I'm the king of the Jews? Are you just doing your little governor duty here by saying, what's the charge? Do you remember when Nicodemus came to Jesus in John 3? Nicodemus came to him, and Nicodemus spent a couple of verses buttering Jesus up. Oh, we know you're a man of God, and we know you're a great, amazing teacher, and we know that God is using you, and you're just, just this wonderful, wonderful person. First things that Jesus says to Nicodemus is a man must be born again. Jesus says, forget this junk. Let's just get right to the case. Nicodemus, you're not saved. You need to be saved. Same thing happening here. Pilate, are you the king of the Jews? Verse 34, Jesus' response is, Pilate, do you really want to know personally, or are you just here to talk to me? I run into that a lot. We'll get a lot of phone calls from people in the community, not really maybe associated with church. Someone from the church says, hey, you need to talk to my pastor, or, or maybe they could help. And so they'll call up and say, hey, I'm going through this tough time. Can we get together and talk? And I'll say, sure. You know, if I, maybe I'll talk to you, Rich or Renee or somebody. We'll get a chance to talk to you. you know, if we get the opportunity to minister, we want to minister. So sometimes they come in the office, and, and you can tell within about the first five minutes, and it's not because we're super intelligent out here. You can just tell. Do they really want answers, or are they just wanting to spout off about everything? And sometimes you run into those people that truly want to know about the Lord and God, and they want help in their lives, and other times you run into people that just want to talk, and you try to bring them back to truth. You try to bring them back to Scripture, but then they start about this or that, and then they're complaining about this, and they're whining about this. They don't really want truth. They don't really want answers. Jesus, in verse 34, is basically saying, Pilate, Do you personally want to know? Do you really want to know? Verse 35, Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? 
Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. See verse 37 there. There's that word truth. But look at Pilate's answer in verse 38. Pilate said to him, What is truth? Now, that's the question that we've been asking for thousands of years, is what is truth? Now, I find this fascinating. Verse 33 Pilate answers, asks a question. Verse 34, Jesus answers. Verse 35, Pilate asks a question. Verse 36, Jesus answers. Verse 37, Pilate asks a question. Verse 37, Jesus answers. Verse 38, Pilate asks a question. And what was Jesus' answer? There was none. What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. Pilate is asking what is truth, but he really didn't want an answer. See, that's the truth. There's a lot of people that want to know about God. They don't really want to know about God. I have people come up to me sometimes like, oh my goodness, you really need to talk to my fill in the blank, my cousin. My cousin's asking so many questions about the Lord. He really, really wants to know about God. I don't, you know, maybe you talk to him and sometimes they do. Other times they don't really want to know about God. They just want to spout off philosophically about things. See, Pilate, if Pilate really wanted to know what truth was, Don't you think in verse 38, number one, he wouldn't have left? And number two, Jesus would have answered. Because they already had this question-answer thing going. See, this is what happens in the world, verse 38. We talk about wanting to know truth. But when truth is presented, and the truth is Jesus, God's Word, and the Holy Spirit, well, that's not the answer I'm really looking for. I'm telling you right now, Jesus is the answer. God's word is the answer. The spirit is the answer. There is not a deeper meaning in life other than are you saved or are you not saved. That is truth. And when you really look at it from that perspective, you see what the point and purpose of Easter is. Easter answers question 38. What is truth? The truth is God. It's Jesus. That's the truth. And now we no longer need to search for truth. I don't have to go through my life wondering the deep questions of life of why am I here? What is my purpose? What should I be doing with my life? My life is Christ. I'm led by the spirit of truth. And I find in God's word of truth what my direction is. That's the answer. We don't have to search for truth. Because the truth is found in those three elements of Jesus, the spirit, and God's word. Easter answers verse 38 of what is truth. Now, that's the first part. And it'd be kind of nice to end at this point and just call everybody up for communion and let's all end. But the truth of the matter is, we've answered the question of what is truth, but now I sit here and say, okay, Lord, if you're truth, the spirit is truth and the word is truth, and we've answered this question, why is my life so miserable sometimes? I mean, if I'm walking in the truth, if I'm obeying the truth, if I'm following the truth, why do young moms get cancer and die? Why do little kids suffer physically? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why is it that I'm trying to live a godly life and I can barely make ends meet, but I see people that are horrible heathen sinners and they seem blessed beyond belief? How is that truth? How is it truth that I'm trying to live for Jesus, but yet I'm suffering physically more than non-believers? How is it truth that I've come into this building today, I'm emotionally scarred, I'm spiritually scarred, and I'm physically scarred? How is that truth? Okay. How is this answering questions? How is the empty tomb going to help me through this pain and this suffering and all this other type of stuff? Because if that's truth, then I can find a better truth someplace else. 
Well, let's go back to the second half of our verse now. Still have your hand in Hebrews. Hebrews 12, verse 24, we've answered the first question. To Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. We've already established what Jesus is. To the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about the blood that speaks better things than that of Abel. Well, the only way to fully find out what that means is to go back and let's talk about Abel. Can you go to Genesis chapter 4? Let's see what happened here with Abel. What are these better things that God's talking about? Because if I'm looking for truth, I want the answers. This world is not fun sometimes. You turn on the nightly news and you walk away depressed. People attacking people, people killing other people, horrible things happening to each other. We all know loved ones that have been diagnosed with something difficult. We all have loved ones and friends that are going through difficult times. Some of you came in this morning. You're hurting physically. Your marriage is hurting. You're hurting spiritually. You're hurting emotionally. Where's the truth in this? Genesis 4, verse 1. This is after the fall. Verse 1, now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Verse 2, then she bore again, this time, his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, Cain was a tiller of the ground. So Abel was a shepherd, Cain is a farmer. Verse 3, in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of fruit of the ground of the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of the flock, and their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering, and Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. Okay, very simply put, Cain's a farmer, Abel's a shepherd. So they're both bringing a sacrifice to the Lord. Abel brings the firstborn of the sheep, which is obviously a reference to Christ. Is this idea of Jesus was the lamb that was slain, um, that the sheep represented the death for sins of Abel. Uh, the Bible makes it clear, unless there's shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sins. Somebody has to pay the price for our sins. Hence, Jesus dying on the cross. He paid the price for our sins. So this lamb paid the price for Abel's sins, and so therefore Abel had contact with God because of the death of the lamb. It's a picture of Jesus. Well, Cain, being a farmer, he brought what he worked for. Cain brought his works before God. And so Cain brought everything he worked for, everything he toiled before, and before God he sat down his works and says, look at all the good things I've done, can I have access to God? God doesn't care about your works. Now I want to make this abundantly clear. Because every now and then you still run into somebody who still thinks, okay, I believe in the whole Jesus thing, and I understand the whole death on the cross, but you know what? Let's just be honest. I'm really not that bad of a person. I've done more good than bad. I'm sure I'm going to be okay. That is a lie from the pit of hell. You are not going to be okay. Number one, I highly doubt you've done more good than bad. I really doubt that. God love you, but I doubt that. Number two, the way the rules are, once you screw up once, you're done. So you've already sinned by this point in your life. And as we talked about earlier in earlier studies, if you don't think you've sinned, well, the Bible says you're born into sin. It says your parents are sin. You've inherited sin. You live in sin. You act out sin. You're just sinning. And if you still don't think you've sinned, well, the Bible just comes out and says you're a liar. Okay? So God love you. You're just a liar if you don't think you've sinned. Point is, we all have sin. We, we just all do. That has to be dealt with. So if you still feel in your mind that I'm a relatively good person and I'm going to get into heaven based on my works, then you're not understanding anything I said. You're Cain. You're bringing your works before the Lord saying, accept me. I'm good. God says no. God says somebody has to die for you and I to have access. Now that sounds really harsh. But the truth is, 
that sin has to be dealt with. You know, if you owe debt, that debt has to be paid. Somebody has to pay the debt. Well, Jesus is the one that says, I will pay your debt of sin by me. I will personally pay it by what I did. So what happens is, Cain's angry, verse 6. Verse 7, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Did you catch verse 7? Sin's desire is for you. Everywhere you look, there's temptation. Everywhere you look, there's just going to be this temptation left and right. You walk down the street, someone's not dressed appropriately. You flip on the TV, there's things you shouldn't hear. You go to work and people are telling stories that you don't want to listen to. Sin is everywhere. And it says its desire is for you. It wants to destroy you. Once again, I'm not that important. But if sin can bring me down, well, then it's going to hurt my wife. It's going to hurt my boys. It's going to hurt the church. See, it's a domino effect. If if sin can just bring one of us down, then when we go down, other people go down with us. That's why it's so vital to realize the power of sin and that sin wants to do to you. It wants to destroy us and rule over us. Verse 8, Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Verse 8 is one of the saddest verses in the Bible. Verse 9, Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Verse 10, He said, What you have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Verse 10, that's the blood of Abel. So now in Hebrews 12, where Jesus does something better than the blood of Abel, now you see the difference. The blood of Jesus brings forgiveness and life and a purpose and peace. The blood of Abel, verse 10, is a curse. The ground you walk on is the ground in which Abel's blood was spilled. We live in a fallen, cursed world. That is why when you flip on the television, people are killing people. It happened 6,000 years ago when Cain killed Abel. This is why when we go to work, this is all we hear about is death and destruction and sickness because this is the blood of Abel's ground. When you go home and those home fights and spits and disputes because you're walking on the blood of Abel, This is a cursed, fallen world, and it's the blood of Abel. That's why Jesus' blood is more better. See, he fixes it. Well, if he fixes it, why isn't it fixed now? Because you're registered in heaven. See, he didn't promise to fix it on this world. He says, for all of eternity, I'll make it right. We've been going through 1 Peter on Sunday mornings, excuse me, on Wednesday evenings, and one of the points in 1 Peter is we're citizens of heaven. That's where our home is. We're just passing through here very, very briefly. And so the pains and struggles that we have here in this world are very brief. Some of you may be saying, I've been struggling with this for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. I will struggle with this my whole life. This emotional, spiritual pain I will take to my grave. This physical ailment I have I'll take to my grave. But you know what? If you're in Christ, as soon as you enter heaven, you're born again and saved and everything's right. That ailment's gone. That's the beauty of it. This ground we walk on is the cursed ground of the blood of Abel that is on it. This is a fallen world, people. So even though we know truth, and we know the truth of Jesus, we know the truth of God's word, we know the truth of the Spirit, we're still walking on the planet where Cain killed Abel. And Jesus said in Hebrews 12, My blood will do better things than that. I can fix this through me. Now the question is, do we believe it? 
Because here's the thing. Sitting here this morning, now we all know this truth. Some of you are still hurting physically. Some of you are still hurting spiritually. Some of you are still hurting emotionally. Just because you know the truth, does it help? Now the question comes up, are you following the truth? I had a situation happen, no, oh, probably about a month or two ago. The boys were getting up and getting ready for school. And I heard Kenan, our uh, third one, who's three, I heard him just deeply sigh and said, oh, man. He was in his room. So I go into his room. I said, Kenan, what's wrong? He's standing on his bed looking out the window, and his window faces the east. This is in the morning, and he's looking. I said, Ken, what's wrong? He goes, look. The sun's coming up. He goes, it's time to go to bed. I said, what? He goes, it's time to go to bed. I said, no, honey. I said, you just got to be. He goes, look, the sun's going down. It's time to go to bed. I said, buddy. I said, the sun rises in the east, and it sets in the west. So I physically took him, and I took him, and I turned him and faced the west. I said, when you see the sun over there... Going down, it's time to go to bed. Flipped him around, face east. When you see the sun right here, it means it's time to get up. Everything's okay. Well, then he was happy. He got it. Now, here's the problem. He didn't know truth. He saw something, and he made his own decision, his own logic that was not based in truth. Now, let's just be honest. The sun coming up and the sun going down looks pretty similar sometimes, doesn't it? It's all in your perspective. Are you facing the east or the west? This world that we live in, oh, that's tough. That's a tough world we live in. But the sun is not setting. The sun rose. The sun rose from the dead, actually. And so now, when I see the sun rising, there's hope. There's joy. Because I realize the truth of what that means. When uh, Rich taught sunrise service this morning, he went to John 20, and he was talking about uh, Mary Magdalene going to the tomb. And I was taking notes as he was teaching this morning, and these phrases kept popping up. The first one is, and you don't need to turn there, but it's in John 20, verse 2. It says that when Mary first got to the tomb, she was confused. Well, and in verse 11, the Bible says that Mary was weeping because she couldn't find Jesus. And then in verse 13, Mary was questioning because she couldn't find Jesus. Now listen, does this not describe the world? We're confused, we're weeping, and we're questioning. That's us. Now, We may not want to admit it, but we've all been in that spot before. Lord, I'm confused. I don't get it. You say you love me, but then why do you allow these things to happen in my life? You you said you always take care of me, but did you just hear what the doctor said? You, You said that you'd always be with me, but then why is my family falling apart? I'm confused, Lord. This is not what I signed up for, and I don't get how you're in this. Well, what about the weeping? Lord, you say you care for me, but yet my life is complete disaster, and the only thing I have are the tears on my pillow to get me through. This weeping, Lord, what are you doing? Which then leads to questioning. Why even pray? I mean, I'll call up Pastor James, and he's going to say you need to pray about it, but what's, I prayed about it. What's going to change? He'll give me some verses to read, but I'll read those verses. Is anything really going to change? I mean, what's the point of all this? We pray, nothing changes. We read, nothing changes. We go to church, nothing changes. We go through all those emotions. We're confused, we're weeping, and we're questioning. That's exactly what Mary was going through at the grave. Now, why was Mary going through that at the grave? Because she went to look for the body of Jesus. She thought Jesus was still dead. She didn't understand the truth that he rose again. And so what happened was, as Rich was talking this morning, when she saw the face of Jesus, she still didn't recognize him, and she finally understood it was Jesus when what? He spoke. Then it hit her. The confusion, the weeping, and the questioning 
all disappeared when she heard the voice of her Savior say her name. See, here's the problem. We know the truth. Everybody here can say there's a heaven and then there's a hell. And Jesus is what gets me into heaven. He's the mediator. He took away my sins of the world. Yeah, we, we know the truth. Do you ever realize you may be staring that truth right in the face and you're still not getting it? And you still have confusion, you still have weeping, and you still have questioning. Because why? You are walking on the ground in which the blood of Abel was spilled. And that's why we have to fully understand the second half of that passage in Hebrews 12, 24. Jesus' blood speaks of better things. See, so what is Easter? Easter answers the question that Pilate asked of what is truth. Easter says Christ is truth. God's word is truth. The spirit is truth. Easter answers the question of what about this cursed, fallen world where things aren't right, things aren't fair, and this is not what I signed up for. The blood of Jesus speaks of better things than what this world is. And that you have a home waiting for you, reserves for you in heaven through what Christ did on the cross. That is what Easter is about. And so when we fully see this, now I get it, Lord. Now I get it. Does that all of a sudden make everything I'm going through this world okay? No. There's still spiritual, emotional, and physical pain. But now I know the truth. Now I'm looking at the truth. And even though I think the sun is setting, the sun is actually rising. I see the truth. I know the truth. I live the truth. And I trust that that passage is true, that there's better things coming through the blood of Christ than the blood of Abel that cursed this world. And that is what the hope of Easter is. Bob, if you want to go back and go ahead and get the kids. With that being said, I want us to take those thoughts that we had. And maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're Charles trying to figure out truth. Maybe you came in this morning and you've got a lot of tough situations you're going through. Dare I use the word baggage? The spiritual, emotional, the physical. It's nice to know that the Lord is the one that gets us through that. As we get ready to partake of communion here, it leads us to two things. First off, we have out here at Harvest something called an open communion policy. We don't have church membership. So therefore, if you're here this morning, we want you to partake of communion with us. And the only requirement, and I use that word lightly, is communion.